uh, an honor to be with you. Thank you for that kind introduction. I remember when, when we connected on Twitter, Pastor David, and just the, uh, the help that you've been and, and just the wisdom and, and navigating. We live in a crazy world. And it's not just crazy out there, it's crazy in the church. And just to see how, how the church has responded to a new modernism and to, to think through these issues. So I just appreciate your help and just wisely uh, thinking through these issues the past few years. Uh, if you would, I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to read verses 22 to 33. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The doctrines of headship and the wife's submission, which Paul beautifully teaches in this passage, have become a watershed doctrine the past 20 years. And by that I mean they have largely been abandoned by much of the evangelical church in America. They've been abandoned not because God's word is not clear. They've been abandoned because God's word is not revered. That is the issue that we're facing today in evangelicalism. It's not so much the debate anymore about inerrancy. The debate is about Scripture's authority. Will we submit to the Word of God against the prevailing tide of modernity in the culture? Or will we put our finger to the wind and see what the culture is doing so complementarianism, that's the, the doctrine that the husband is the head of the wife and the, the wife is to submit to her husband, uh, is not a doctrine that saves. It's not a first-order doctrine. It's not like the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not like the doctrine of justification by faith. It's not like the doctrine of inerrancy. But make no mistake, this doctrine is a litmus test about where you and your church and your denomination fall regarding scriptural authority. It's a litmus test. It's a continental divide 
It's a continental divide. Where you land on this issue is going to put your church in one place or another. You know, a drop of rain that falls on one side of the Rocky Mountains is going to end up in the Pacific Ocean. On the other side, it's going to end up in the Mississippi. It's, it's a continental divide because if you land on the wrong side of this, you are going to give away to the culture in more areas. It's, it's the slippery slope that will happen regarding scriptural authority. So the question is, do we believe that all scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness? Do we believe that? That's the question. Not, not just the salvation passages, but do we believe that all of it is theopneustos, breathed out by God? And if we do, then why wouldn't we obey it and submit to it? If there is going to be, and I pray that there is, another reformation and revival in this country, it is going to be an awakening to the Lordship of Christ regarding His authority. And therefore, what you're going to see where the Holy Spirit brings reformation and revival is a recovery of this, of husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives submitting to their own husbands joyfully. Look look what Paul says in verse 22. He says, this is a responsibility to Christ as Lord. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands. How so? As to the Lord. It's not about who the husband is. It's the Lordship of Christ. Same in verse 25. He says, this is an imperative to husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this is, this is very important regarding Christ's Lordship. And that's why I say when the Holy Spirit brings a recovery of scriptural authority to a church, one of the markers is, is a recovery of complementarian theology. It's also important because if you look at verse 32, Paul reveals that what he has just taught about the roles of husbands and wives reveals something very important about our understanding of our relationship to Christ. He says, this mystery is profound. A mystery is something not that we need clues to try and figure out. A mystery in the New Testament is something that wasn't previously revealed, but now has been disclosed and made clear. Paul says, look, this is the mystery that marriage all along has pointed to this grand reality of Christ in the church, that the husband's relationship to the wife is to be viewed in this way. So this is marvelous truth. This is transcendent truth. And and out of a desire to do things your own way, what has happened is, is is the Western church has largely cut itself off from this truth, this transcendence that the husband-wife relationship is to picture the glorious relationship of Christ in the church. So what I'd like to show you just briefly walking through this passage is how these roles transcendently point to this glorious relationship of Christ in the church. Many of you have taught through the book of Ephesians, so you know the outline well that the first Three chapters are largely doctrinal, and the last three chapters are largely practical. Obviously, doctrine and and application go hand in hand, but you you see that division. And then I want to show you just how 
I think Paul breaks down this section, verses 22 to 24 regard the wife's role, verses 25 to 30, the husband's role, and then in verses 31 to 33, Paul will give a final application regarding marriage. So I'm just going to follow Paul's, Paul's outline, and I want to start with the wife's role in verse 22. Please look at verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So he gives this imperative, this command, wives, submit. The verb is hupotasso. It's a compound verb. It means under and set. It means to set under. It means to cause to be in a submissive relationship, to submit, to subject. That's how the New American Standard translates it, to subordinate. Interestingly, the verb is not actually found in verse 22. It's implied in verse 22. The verb is found in verse 21. If you look up at verse 21, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, as as scholars will point out, this is a general command for everyone in the church to submit to one another and put others' interests ahead of their own. But what has happened is, is those who want to negate the husband's headship over the wife and the wife's submission to the husband have stated from verse 21 that there is a mutual submission. That yes, the wife is told to submit to the husband, but it's also the husband's responsibility to submit to the wife. Now, let me tell you why the context does not teach that. Paul lays out this general principle of submission here in in verse 21, Hupotasso. And what he's going to do is he's going to outline various relationships within the life of the church where you will find submission. This is the thread that that is woven through the rest of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. So if, if you're thinking, husband and wife, who do you normally address first in a marriage relationship? It's normally Mr. and Mrs., right? You normally address the husband first, then the wife. Who does Paul address first? The wife. He addresses the wife first. Why? Because he's dealing with this topic of submission. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then, verse 25, he's going to address the husbands. Now look at chapter 6. He begins to deal with parents and children. Who would you think, logically speaking, you're doing a parenting conference, who do you address first, the parents or the children? I'm going to address the parents first. Who does Paul address first? The children. Why? Because he's dealing with this topic of submission. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now let's go into the workplace. Let's talk about bond servants and their masters. Who would you normally address first? The masters. Who does Paul address first? The bond servants. There's the theme of submission. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And then only in verse 9 does he address masters. So this theme of submission is is very clear that that Paul is giving a very specific instruction to the wife to submit to her own husband. And what is to motivate this submission? 
Look at that last clause in verse 22. He says it's her submission to Christ as Lord. It's out of her love for Christ, out of her love for the Lord, out of her desire to honor the Lord that she submits and obeys her husband. It's not based on the the merits of her husband. It's not based on that. And this is why when you go to a church that prizes biblical authority, what you will find are women who joyfully, as much as they can in Christ, submit to their own husbands. And that's what the world finds unfathomable. Why would you submit to your own husband? It's the lordship of Christ. That's why. And that's what, that's what Paul is, is fleshing out. He's fleshing out this issue of authority in, in Christ's lordship. In fact, Peter is going to say, Peter's going to say that you even submit to your husband if he's an unbeliever. 1 Peter 3, 1, Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, talking about them being unbelievers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their respectful and pure conduct. Now, this submission by no means entails that the wife is inferior in value. Uh, like Pastor David said, I served in the Marine Corps. I served under a lot of different officers. When, you, when you're under somebody in rank, that doesn't mean you're an inferior person. It just means that you have a different rank and a different responsibility, and that's what Paul's saying. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.3, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. So every man is under the lordship of Christ. The head of a, a, head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So even Christ in his humanity submitted to God's authority, to God's lordship. You remember when Jesus was sitting at the well and his, he finished talking to the woman and the disciples came up and they're hungry. And they said, Jesus, can we go get you some food? And Jesus said, I have food. And they start asking, well, where did he get food? And he says, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. He, in his humanity, submitted to the will of God the Father. Did that mean that he was inferior? No, it did not. No, it did not. It just meant that he was carrying out a different mission. And that's what Paul is saying here to the wife, that she has a different mission. What reason does God give for this submission? What does God give as the, as the reason? One egalitarian scholar, that's somebody who argues that there are no distinctions within the marriage relationship. She said this, though Paul is talking about mutual submission in Ephesians 5. There it is, the mutual submission. In verses 22 to 24, he emphasizes the need for wives to submit to their husbands. We're not sure why exactly, because Paul doesn't tell us. End quote. Well, if you look, the reason is stated in verse 23. Look at verse 23. This is the reason that Paul gives. Paul always argues with reasons. He says, for the husband. This is why the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
So Paul introduces this glorious truth here, this this mysterious truth that Christ is the head of the body, which is the church, and is its Savior. So you think of a picture of a body and a head, and there's an organic unity in that picture, this picture of oneness. A body cannot function without a head. We are joined together through faith with Christ. And so Christ is forever joined to the church. We are united to Him by faith and have become one with Him. And Paul says He is our Savior. And he says that the marriage relationship is like this. He's using this as as an analogy. Uh, Just as Christ is the head of His body, the church, so the husband is the head of his wife. Now that word head is the Greek word kephale, the Greek word kephale. And as you can imagine, there has been massive debate on this word because so many want to define it as something other than a position of authority. So many want to redefine it. Egalitarians largely define this word as source. Now, there are out of thousands of uses of this word, and it's used all the time from from Homer and the pre-Socratic Greeks all the way to the church fathers. It's used thousands of times all the way through the, the Greek Septuagint. Possibly two could mean source out of the thousands now, one time I was at the, the meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, and I went to a session that Wayne Grudem held simply on the meaning of kephale. And it was Wayne Grudem against probably 150 egalitarian scholars. It was one versus the many. And, 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 and Wayne personally went and did a study of over 2,300 uses of the word kephale in all types of Greek literature. And what he found is that the majority of the time, the, the word simply just means head, as in, as in your noggin, the, the head on your body. That's the majority of the uses. But when it's used in the singular and in reference to a person, it always means, always, a position of authority. Always. And he put up on on the slide, he put up every instance that he found where it was singular and in reference to a person where somebody is given the title of head, it always means authority. So these egalitarian scholars were saying, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And Wayne would just say, is it in the singular? Is it in reference to a person? And then they they would walk back to the room and, and and then... I've never witnessed a greater rhetorical victory in the debate. I've never witnessed a greater rhetorical victory. Literally, guys, egalitarians walking out of the room after after Wayne had shut them down. It was was a sight to behold. But here's my point. The meaning of this word is very clear. I, I went and looked it up in Bauer's lexicon last week. And source isn't even mentioned as one of the the lexical uh, possibilities. The the first one is, as Wayne mentioned, is first the part of the body that contains the brain, the head. And you see this in Matthew 5.36. 
where Jesus says, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Matthew 6, 17. But when you fast, anoint your head. Matthew 8, 20. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now the second lexical meaning is being of high status such as the head of a table, the place of authority. And Paul uses this meaning several times elsewhere. For example, in Ephesians 1.22, he says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Do you hear that language of authority, that he's the, the head over all things? Colossians 2.10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule, and authority. Clearly, is Christ the head of the church? He is. Is he the ruler of the church? He is. Clearly, what Paul is saying then is that the reason why the wife is to submit to her own husband is because the husband is the authority of the wife. That's what Paul's saying, just as Christ is the authority over the church. Verse 24 is the application of this principle for the wife. He says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I want you to notice several things about this applicational statement. First, Submission is the wife's responsibility. Submission is the wife's responsibility. It's not the husband's responsibility to make his wife submit. She must do this. And by the way, no marriage can survive a woman challenging her husband to be the head. If you have two heads, you have a monster. If you have no head, you're dead. You need one head and one body to function properly. That's the metaphor Paul's using. So it doesn't matter, and you'll see this in pastoral counseling, it doesn't matter how great a leader that man is. He could be George Washington or Bill Belichick or name a great leader. But if she's not willing to submit to that leadership, they're not going anywhere. That's the implication. Second, this submission is only to her own Husband, this is not a submission to all men. Notice that emphasis that Paul gives there in verse 24, to their husbands. And then same in verse 22, to your own husbands. I saw uh, one scholar said, quote, you should no more submit to another man besides your husband than the church should submit to some other Lord besides Jesus. So we see that this headship that that God provides is supposed to protect the woman from the tyrannical headship of other men. Your headship, the husband's headship, is to be shade for the wife. It's to be a protective headship. So she's not ruled by someone else. And third, we see throughout Scripture that this submission is not a doormat submission. Remember, from the very beginning, the wife is called the Izer, the helper, she is to be the helpmate of the husband. A strong man needs a strong woman to stand by him, to help 
him and his calling and to follow him as much as she can under the lordship of Christ. So I think the wife's role is very clear. I know it's countercultural, but this is at the heart of the lordship of Christ. And so it is with the husband's role. Look now at verse 25. Verse 25, Paul shifts gears to the husband's role. And you could argue that the husband's role is even more difficult than the role of the wife. Look at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The husband's responsibility is to love his wife. And you have this picture of Christ giving himself up purposely and intentionally through the crucifixion to save his bride. So what type of love is this that that Paul is talking about? Well, we're given two hints regarding this love. And the first hint is in the word that Paul uses, agape. You know that in the Greek language, there are three different words for love. There's eros, which is a romantic love. There's philia, which is a brotherly love. Think Philadelphia and Apollo Creed and and Rocky Balboa or David and Jonathan. You think of that, that coming alongside one another, companionship. But then there's agape love, which is the unconditional love, the love that God has for humans. And The classic example of this distinction between philia and agape love is in John chapter 21, and you know this distinction, but this is when Jesus goes to restore Peter, and remember Peter had denied Jesus three times, and and Jesus comes to the disciples, they're fishing, and and Jesus is on the, the beach cooking breakfast, and there's an interplay between Jesus and Simon Peter on the use of of these words, phileo and agapao. And I know, I've read the commentaries where Carson and others say that these words are simply interchangeable, and they are often used interchangeably. But they're not used interchangeably here, are they? The first thing you'll notice is in verse 15, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Agapao, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Simon said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Phileo, so he's he's not using the the same verb. He said to him, Jesus then said to him, tend my sheep. Now the third time, Jesus drops down to phileo. He doesn't use agapao. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus then said to him, feed my sheep. So there's a distinction, I believe, between these types of of love, that this agape love is the, the love in which God loves us, but God demonstrates 
his own love, his agape love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Agape. That's agape love. John 15, 13. So there's something important in this word itself. And of course, you have John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So husbands are charged to have this love, this agape love. It doesn't mean that you don't have eros or philia love for your wife. You do have those loves. You should be romantically inclined to marry your bride. You should be. You should enjoy being a companion with your wife. Often I hear uh, husbands refer to their wives as their best friends. That's a good thing. You need these different aspects of love. But most importantly, and this is the type of love that, that Paul's exhorting husbands to have, you need this sacrificial love. This agape love. Second, we're given a hint to the meaning of this love by seeing how Paul describes it. He says, Christ loved the church. Agapao, he loved the church and he gave himself up for her. He gave himself up. It's a sacrificial love that lays down its life for another. And over and over and over in the Gospels, Jesus says, I am going to Jerusalem and I am going to lay down my life. Make no mistake, no one took Jesus' life by accident. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He went to the cross in the garden. He could have called down the myriad of angels and stopped the whole thing. He could have showed up at Pilate and said, you're the one on trial, but he didn't. He went through it all. He went to the cross. He gave himself up so that he might purchase his bride. He demonstrated this love. What's the purpose of this? Well, there's ascending purpose statements beginning in verse 26. Look at verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Paul essentially waxes eloquent on one of the highest views of the cross found anywhere in Scripture. What's the purpose of the cross? Why did the cross happen? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because at the cross, grace was purchased so that we might be sanctified. That's the positive element, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And all of that was completed at the cross. It's hagiazo, that we might be made holy. That's the positive action negatively, look what Paul says, he cleanses us, he cleanses her by the washing of water with the word. That when Christ died, he he purchased the grace to bring about our cleansing. Now there's a lot of questions about what this means. Why does he talk about water, for example, and not blood? Wasn't it blood that was poured out at the cross? Why the washing of water? Well, you'll know that water in the Old Covenant was an expression of cleansing and the new birth. It's the soul cleansing that happens from the washing away of the sins of the heart. So the prophet Ezekiel, for example, in Ezekiel 36, 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And Paul says that in the new covenant, this is what happens when you become a believer. When you profess faith in Christ, at that moment, you are washed. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but you were washed. You were sanctified. This is what happens in the new birth. And this is why, do you remember that conversation that, that Jesus had with Nicodemus? Jesus first said, you must be born again. And then Nicodemus asked, well, can a man enter into his womb a second time? And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born of what? Water and the Spirit. You must have this rebirth, this, this soul cleansing. Now, how does that rebirth happen experientially in your life? It happens through the power of the Word of God. Right? That's what Peter says, 1 Peter 1.23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. But that power, that born again power that the Holy Spirit applied in your life in a specific point in time was all purchased for you at Calvary that day because he wanted to purify you and sanctify you, and cleanse you from all of your sin. So you see the ultimate purpose. Look at verse 27. That purpose clause right there at the beginning. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Did you notice how the metaphor switched right there? He's been using the metaphor of the body and the head, and now he switches metaphors to the picture of a bride and a groom, that the church is a bride that is being presented to a bridegroom. Christ died to purify for himself a bride. And there's a presentation involved that... that we are presented to Him. That's, I think, the glorious part of every wedding. You know, when you officiate a wedding ceremony and you stand right here at the altar and the, the bride and her dad stand right back there at the door and everybody stands up and the father walks his bride down the aisle and they stand six feet front and center and the officiant asks, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father says, her mother and I do. And he puts that bride's arm now into the arm of the groom. That's the presentation. He's presenting that bride to him. Here's what's interesting about what Paul's saying. Several things. One, Christ is both the groom and the one who presents the bride. Isn't that remarkable? He's both the groom and he's the one who presents. Look what else is really, I just think, mind-blowing to think about. He presents the church to himself in splendor. Or maybe your translation says glory. Now here's what's remarkable about that. Are we glorious? 
do we have splendor in and of ourselves? No, we don't. So where's our splendor from? Where's the glory from? The glory's from Christ. It's what he purchased for us. The splendor's from Christ. It's what he did for us. That he cleansed us so that we are without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be a be holy and without blemish. Christian, if you are justified by faith, that is who you are. You are holy. You are without blemish. You are without spot or wrinkle because Christ has made you that way. Yes, we are different from the world. We are different. But it's not because we made ourselves different. It's because Christ made us different. Because the crucifixion of Christ accomplished this cleansing for us that sets us apart, that makes us holy. And that's the great difference between the church and the world. It's not an innate holiness. It's grace holiness. So don't forget that. You're you're part of the church by virtue of divine grace, not divine merit. It's all Christ. It's all Calvary. It's all the purification that He accomplished for us. So then Paul says, wow, husbands, in the same way should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So Paul goes back to this head-body metaphor that he has used earlier. But he, but he keeps this theme of sacrificial agape love. He says, husbands, you are to love your wife in this way that you lay your life down for her, that you preserve her, that you, that you strive, not in a salvific way or in a, in a, in a spiritual way, because you can't do this, only the Holy Spirit can, but you try to sanctify her, you try to put her on the path of holiness in God's blessing. So yes, husbands are the head of their wives, it's leadership, but it's a sacrificial leadership. I'll never forget, about seven years ago, my friend Gavin Peacock and I were doing a a conference in the Dominican Republic. The the conference was called Se Hombre, which in Spanish means be a man. And we were were doing this conference to a couple thousand people. It was a significant uh, group of men. And do you remember this, Gavin? Of course you do. We We were on a panel on the last day and they were asking questions. And one of the questions that was asked is, suppose that you're trying to lead your wife. You're trying to serve her. You're trying to lay down your life for her. But she won't submit to your leadership. What do you do then? And I was thinking to myself, wow, what do you do then? But I'm on the panel, so I... I'm thinking, man, I hope, I hope they don't ask me this question. 
And by God's grace, they asked Gavin this question. They said, Gavin, what do you do if your wife won't submit to your leadership, but you're trying to lead her and serve her and love her in this way? I'll never forget what he said. He said, what you do is you take off her shoes, you grab a towel and a basin, and you wash her feet. And you do that. You live like that every day. You serve her and show her Christ's love, regardless of whether she submits to you or not. Because it's about what? It's about the Lordship of Christ. Just as the wife's responsibility to submit is about what? The Lordship of Christ. Serving her and loving her isn't about her response to submit to you. It's about the Lordship of Christ over your life. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. And so Paul says, if you look at verse 29, for no one ever ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. So you see this unity. Our world wants to have a battle of the sexes, men versus women. What do I get? What do I get from this marriage? What do you get from this marriage? Paul says, no, that's not how to think about it. We're unified. We're, it's, it's one body with, with a head in the body. And so husbands, in the same way that you nourish your own body, you are to, to nourish your wife. You know, if you think about it, if you're, if you're on a long hike and you have blisters, what do you do? You stop and you put, you put uh, moleskin on the blister. If you're dehydrated, what do you do? You stop and you get water. Why? Because you are nourishing your body. And that is what a husband is to do to his wife. He is to take care of her and her needs. What's really fascinating about this is, again, Paul draws the parallel to Christ and the church. Look at what he says. He says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Present tense. You see that? Present tense. That Christ cherishes the church. This isn't past tense. This isn't what Christ accomplished at the cross. This is now. Right now, Christ is cherishing His body from the right hand of the Father as He's interceding for us, as He's guiding us, as He's providing for His church. Do you think, God, do you think Christ has left His church abandoned in the world? Do you think Christ's church is done when the next generation dies off? No. Because the chief shepherd has not abandoned her. He is nourishing the church, his body. And there is such great confidence in that as a pastor. That ultimately, Christ is the one nourishing your people through the word. And by the way, that's, that, that's why we do Bible exposition. They need to hear from Christ and be nourished by Christ. That's why Christ gives gifts to the church. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. That's what Christ is doing in the world is He's nourishing His church. And then you come, lastly, to the final application here in verses 31 to 33. 
And Paul is going to quote in verse 31, Genesis chapter 2. And he says, quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. End quote. So what he's saying is, is he's saying that what we've known all along about God's ordination of marriage, that God designed marriage, that God designed the family, Paul's saying what we've known all along is ultimately fulfilled in what I've just revealed to you. That all along, God designed this from the very beginning, the very beginning of time, to point to the relationship of Christ in the church. That was the purpose from the very beginning, he's saying. And this is why it's so important that we recover biblical complementarity in these roles within marriage. That our roles... The, the husband's loving headship and the wife's joyful submission to her husband point to the gospel itself. So if you have a church where couples are displaying this, it is a beacon of the gospel to the community. It's an evangelistic tool. And this is the purpose of, of marriage all along. And that's why he says, verse 32, that this was a mystery. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is God's design from the beginning. And this gives you insight to why, as we as believers, have the extra gear in marriage. We understand marriage's transcendence, what it was designed to be. We understand this function of headship and submission. And that's why our marriages should look different. That's why the divorce rate in the church should be different. That's why uh, the joy in our household should be different, because we understand the meaning of all this. We understand the transcendence of all this, that it's not just about our relationship. It's about Christ and the church. It's about glory. It's about what God is doing in the world, that, that Christ redeemed a people and is calling a people and is sanctifying a people. That's what this is all about. But in understanding this, there's a very helpful practical application, application that he gives in verse 33, which he signs off with. Look at verse 33. Verse 33, you could have ended it with verse 32, but he gives this practical application in verse 33. It's not a throwaway verse. It's a very important verse. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let, his, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here's what's interesting about this final verse. Paul gives different instructions to each spouse. He says, wives, respect, honor your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now, is a husband to honor and respect his wife? He is. Is a wife to love her husband? She is. But God gives these specific instructions because these are aligned with the roles that he's given and they are aligned with the needs that we each have. The husband, what's the, what's the big need of a man? He wants to be respected. He wants to be honored. What's the big need of the woman? She wants to be cherished. She wants to be loved. And so Paul gives these different instructions, and we're prone as men to want to, to honor our wives because that's what we want. But we have to remember, we need to love them. And women are prone to just say, well, I love my husband, but I don't really respect him. But he needs respect. He needs 
honor. And so Paul gives that instruction to the wife. But here's the big ultimate issue. And I, I want to sign off right where we began. The big ultimate issue in all of this, because I think it's very clear what Paul is saying. I don't think it's obscure. I don't think it's hard to understand. The big issue is the Lordship of Christ. Will we or will we not submit to him? And if we do, our marriages will reflect that. And our marriages will thrive because of it. And our marriages will reflect the gospel itself. The lordship of Christ over his church. And the church willingly submitting to that lordship. It's a glorious picture, transcendent picture. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this mystery that's been revealed. That marriage was designed from the very beginning to picture the relationship of Christ and the church. And that Christ loved us and served us by laying down his life to sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us pure, to make us blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. What glorious news. And God, we thank you that you are nourishing the church, that you are ruling and reigning and that you are providing for the church's needs. So we trust now today in your sovereignty in the midst of these complex times. We, we, we rest in, in your glorious sovereignty that you are nourishing the church. Lord, give us grace and humility as we seek to apply these principles in our own lives. We need it. We need, we need your power. We need your grace. May we love and may we submit as you have told us to do so under the, the great lordship of Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.